Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you are a guest, again, we welcome you. It does encourage us that you're here. I want to commend all of you for making the decision to be here tonight. Already it's been such a blessing to have the opportunity to worship God thus far. The beautiful songs of praise and the prayer. And hopefully as we continue to study God's word, that, that it will continue to be a blessing to us. And I understand and realize, just as you do, that there are many places that all of us could be uh, right now. And to make this a priority is such a, uh, a compliment to you that you have a hunger to worship God and to study God's Word. A preacher was out in the country and he was baptizing someone. And, and as he, he was baptizing them, the old town drunk stumbled by. And he was a little bit perturbed at the fact that the drunk would even come to such an occasion like this. And as he was bringing the one individual out of the water, the old town drunk said, I'd like to be baptized. And he brought him down in that water and he put him under the water and he held him a little bit longer than you'd normally hold someone and he brings them back up and he's spitting water out, wiping his face and, and almost in sarcasm, the preacher says, did you find Jesus? And the old drunk said, no, no. And so he takes him down and he holds him longer the next time. He pulls him up again and when he does, he says, did you find Jesus now? And the old drunk says, no. No, no. He puts him underneath the water again, and this time he holds him until he starts bubbling. And finally he brings him back up, and, and the old drunk is gasping, and he's spitting water out, and he's wiping it out of his face again. And he says, did you find him this time? And the old drunk says, are you sure he fell in here? <laughs> now, that it, joke does bring delight that there's a lot of confusion in our world about baptism. And the sad thing is, it isn't a joke. It isn't funny to think about how many things are taught about baptism. Ephesians 4 and 5 says there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. But yet we hear so many things taught about baptism. We hear and see so many ways in which a baptism is conducted. And friends, tonight as we simply think about God's Word, we must realize that there's not a choice of how you want to be baptized. There's not a choice about what baptism is if we want to do it according to God's will. And so someone says, all right, what is the big deal about it? I mean, really, <clears throat> why don't we just preach Christ? Why don't we just magnify and exalt Christ? And I don't understand why we would even take the time in an entire lesson to talk about something, something like baptism. Let's just focus on Christ. Look with me, if you will, in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. And by the way, I understand that we'll be looking at many passages tonight and looking at them rather quickly. And so if, if you're not able to keep up, you may want to take and jot down some of these, or you may want to say, hey, let's sit down and let's talk about this a little bit more. And I'll be glad to sit down with you and look back over these passages, because what we're looking at tonight is very, very important. And I wish we could go at a very slow rate of speed. But the truth is, we have so many passages to cover tonight. 
We just will not be able to do that. And, and so please do not leave here without, let's, let's sit down and, and let's discuss this. But for the next few moments, let's think about this. So first we say, okay, if we're going to preach Christ, what happens? Well, when Paul went into Corinth and he preached, what was the first thing he preached? In 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, we began reading in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, and which also you are saved. Now think about it. This has happened a good while back. And now he's sitting down and he's writing a letter to them. He's writing a letter about the past. And he's saying, remember, the first time I came in among you, remember what I did? I preached the gospel. And when I did, you were saved by it. Okay, what was it that he preached? Look at verse 2, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you, here it is, first. Paul, what's the first thing you delivered in Corinth? First of all, that which also I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And two, that he was buried. And three, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Be turning, if you will, to Acts the 18th chapter. Okay, so someone does bring up a good point. Let's preach Christ. Let's put the emphasis on Christ. Okay, what happened in Corinth whenever he went there and he preached the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus? You remember I said, 1 Corinthians 15, he's recording something that happened in the past? Now we can read about that being recorded. In other words, now when we back up to Acts the 18th chapter, this is an account of when Paul first went into Corinth. And so we know that when he first went in there, he preached Christ. Now, what do you think the result was going to be whenever he preached Christ? Look at verse 8, then Christmas. And by the way, you can see up in verse 1, it was when he came into Corinth. He started going into the synagogues, and look what happened in verse 8. Then Christmas, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household. Why did he do that? Because Paul was preaching Christ. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were what? Wait a minute. Why were they baptized? Well, isn't that interesting? It was the preaching of Christ. And what they did at the end of preaching Christ, they said, I want to be baptized. Let's look deeper. You know, the book of Acts shows us all of the conversions in the New Testament. Let's go back to Acts, the second chapter. Acts, the second chapter. And let's see what was preached there. And Acts, the second chapter, listen to what Peter preached in 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as ye you're also, as you yourselves also know. And then in 23, he tells that they were the ones that crucified him. In 24, that God was the one that raised him from the dead. Peter stands up. This is the beginning of the church. What did he do? He preached Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. What do you think was going to be the result of preaching Jesus Christ? Look in verse 41. Then those who gladly received his words, what were his words? The preaching of Jesus Christ. They were baptized. Isn't that interesting that every time in the book of Acts, individuals responded to the preaching of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Let's go over to Acts the 8th chapter. In Acts the 8th chapter, we have Philip going into Samaria, into a town there. And as he goes into Samaria, what do you think he preached? Verse 5 is no surprise, is it? Acts the 8th chapter, verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and what did he preach? He preached Christ to them. What was going to be the result? Look in verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were 
baptized. The result of preaching Christ is baptism. When we look, if you will, in Acts the 8th chapter in verse 35, Philip meets up with the eunuch. And when he meets up with him, what do you think he preached to him? Look in verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at this scripture and he preached Jesus to him. And look at what the result was in verse 38. So he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Acts the 10th chapter, look if you will in Acts the 10th chapter in verse 36. This is where Peter is going to go. And he is going to reach out to the Gentiles. He's going to go into Cornelius' home. And what do you think he's going to preach to them in 36? The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of all. What's going to be the result of preaching Jesus? Verse 48, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Look with me, if you will, to the 16th chapter. Acts the 16th chapter. What do you think happened whenever the gospel was preached to Lydia? Acts the 16th chapter and verse 14. There is three sentences in verse 14. For time's sake, let's go to the last sentence in verse 14. Acts 16. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Now what do you think Paul would have spoke? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. What do you think is going to result when Jesus is preached? 15. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, etc. We look deeper into the book of Acts 16 and we see the Philippian jailer. The earth has quaked. The individuals that were being held in jail are now free to run and he knows that his punishment is going to be execution so he's ready to commit suicide. They urge him not to do that. He wants to know what these people have that he doesn't have. And he wants to know what shall I do to be saved? You see at the end of verse 30, And notice what their answer was in 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So what did they do at that point? They preached Jesus. Look at verse 32. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. What do you think is going to be the result of preaching Jesus? In 33, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and his family were baptized. Friends, somebody says, why why are you going to talk about baptism? Do you realize you can't look in the book of Acts of the preaching of Jesus Christ without people at the end of that sermon saying, I want to be baptized. Friends, this isn't some kind of man-made spin. This isn't some kind of man-made action where men and women that, that became religious said, Let's think of what people ought to do. I have an idea. Let's baptize. From the very beginning of the church, every time Jesus was preached and individuals wanted to respond to be saved, they responded through baptism. Over a hundred times baptism is mentioned in the Bible. We're talking about something that it may not be to everyone here or even in this community, but we're talking about something that to Jesus is significant. To the Lord, it is very, very important. And so if we were going to ask the question, is is baptism necessary? Baptism is necessary if we're going to respond to the preaching of the Lord. But then we ask this question. 
Is baptism of immersion necessary? Or what about sprinkling or pouring? Is that acceptable? Let's look into the Scriptures, and as we do this, I'm not suggesting to you that each passage we will study will answer this question alone. This Each verse will not answer it alone. There will be a couple that we look at that will, and we could go right to those. But I'd like for us to look at several passages so that we can see some supporting passages that just help paint the picture of baptism with a broader stroke. In other words, we could go to one and just say, there it is, bullseye. But let's put some background to this. Let's see some other passages. If you will, let's go to Matthew, the third chapter. In Matthew, the third chapter, we have the record of Jesus being baptized. And and we see that this was John's baptism. But nevertheless, let's still see in the scriptures what was involved in this baptism. In the third chapter, in verse 16... We get a little bit of insight. It doesn't answer all of our questions, but it gives us a little bit of insight. In Matthew, the third chapter, in verse 16, when he had been baptized, Jesus, now paint this picture in your mind, came up immediately from the water. You see that picture of baptism? He came up immediately from the water. Whatever baptism looks like in the scriptures, Jesus was down in the water receiving or participating in that baptism. Let's go, if you will, to John, the third chapter. In John, the third chapter, we get a little more insight about this baptism. In John, the third chapter, it reveals to us why John chose the place that he baptized. In John 3 and 23, now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. Friends, behind me here is a pool that that probably has several hundred gallons of water in it. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that there has to be that many gallons for a baptism But think of the volume of water here in comparison to a a little vessel that has a sprinkler lid on the top. We could take, take a pint of water in a sprinkler lid container and we could sprinkle probably 40, 50, 60 people with less than a pint of water. Now would you say that you need much water to baptize a person? If all you were doing was sprinkling them? Or if you were going to pour water over them, you could baptize a few people with a pint of water. There's no way in the scriptures that would be an accurate portrayal of what baptism was in the New Testament to say that John said, I chose the water that I chose, the body of water, because there was much water there. And, and we see a picture of this. Well, what was it? People were coming up out of this water. As a matter of fact, if you go over to Acts the 8th chapter, Acts the 8th chapter, we just made mention of this just a minute ago, but if you want to look at it again, you remember when Philip was studying with the Ethiopian, remember he preached Jesus and the result was that the Ethiopian said, I want to be baptized. And when we look in 38, notice again the description. And again, I understand 
that any of these individually does not paint the whole picture of baptism, but they're supportive passages. In other words, if we're going to paint that picture, it gives us a broader stroke. It gives us a broader canvas. Now picture this in your mind. What would baptism look like in this way? The 8th chapter, verse 38. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both, both, how much water is involved here? Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Let's go to Romans, the sixth chapter, and this is the passage we could have gone to first because this passage does clearly answer the question when we say in the Bible, what was the baptism that was in the Bible? In Romans, the sixth chapter, if you will, look at verse three, as he says, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Wherefore, here it is. We were buried with him through baptism into death. Lord, we simply want to do what you ask, right? I mean, hopefully that's the heart of every one of us. I want to do God's will. Lord, as we want to do your will, can can you teach us what is baptism? Now, by the way, the Greek word for baptism means immersion. But if we don't understand Greek, Lord, can you teach us what is the baptism? And he says, well, it's a burial. Not a sprinkling or a pouring. He says it's a burial. As a matter of fact, when we go to Colossians, the second chapter, we have a very similar phrase about this very same act of baptism. Colossians 2 and 12, he says, buried with him in baptism. Buried with him. And yet, when we look through the new covenant, and, and, and I want to say this in a gentle way, and to realize that that. This could be uh, a little bit shocking to some that, that would hear this. But sprinkling is never mentioned once in the Bible. Not as it relates to a baptism. Not once. Pouring is not mentioned once in the Bible. As you can imagine, to sit down and to talk with somebody one-on-one that all their life they have been taught that that's what baptism in the Scriptures is. That's disappointing. And usually the first reaction is, I find that hard to believe. I would feel that same way too, I think. As a matter of fact, I know I would feel this way. I don't believe it because you say it. I want a lot more proof than the fact that somebody just said it. I want to urge you. Take the time to go back and read the book of Acts. We just read through most of the conversions in the book of Acts, but there are a few more. And look and see what was happening there. But then at the same time, the next question that almost always comes up once that first processing is done... That, that shock, almost that denial. I can't believe that sprinkling's not in the Bible. I've always believed it. I've always been taught it. 
I've always seen it practiced. How can you say it's not in the Bible? Once that first shock is, is processed, then there's always a second question. And I would ask that second question too. If that's not in the Bible, why have my religious leaders taught me that all these years? That's a good question. Why have they taught that all these years? When I'm in a one-on-one setting, what I immediately ask that person to do is I ask them if they'll go back and make contact with their religious leader and just ask them, what is the baptism that was taught in the New Testament? And notice the difference there. I'm not telling them to go back and ask the religious leader, what would you tell me to do if you wanted me to be baptized? We're not saying that. Ask your religious leader, what was the baptism that was done in the New Testament? And without exception, their religious leader will tell them that the baptism in the New Testament was an immersing of adults or those old enough to believe. Well, where did it come from? I mean, if such a percentage of churches today that teach sprinkling and pouring, where did it come from? There are documents that have been written from the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century on that give us an insight to some things historically. So please understand, I'm not saying that what I'm about to read to you is, is gospel. These are, not, these are not inspired documents that I want to read, but, but yet they are history. They give us insight to where we have records to say that possibly this is where this came from. The Didache is a second century document, and it shows that the apostasy set in of pouring over baptism within the second century. Neander, in a book entitled History of Christian Religion, in its volume 1, page 310, says this, In respect to the form of baptism, it was in conformity with the original institution and the original import of the symbol performed by immersion It was only with the sick where expedience required it that any exception was made. And in this case, baptism was administered by sprinkling. Some of the earliest historians say that the idea of sprinkling or pouring was only an exception. Now keep in mind, it wasn't an exception that God gave. It was an exception where man decided to take liberty with God's commandment to immerse and say, let's do that differently. Isn't it interesting how exceptions over time usually are made more and more frequently until over time exceptions become the rule? I remember a few years ago when we were doing mission work in El Salvador, we studied with a young man who had a real hunger to be immersed into Christ. He was a religious young man, and he was a religious young man who believed in Jesus. But the church that he had been a part of had not taught immersion. But there was a problem. He was on a type of dialysis. And you can imagine in in that kind of country, there was a lot of, of risk 
and being under dialysis. He literally showed us in his little house. If you can just paint a picture in your mind what his house may have looked like. And they had this little machine type deal built under the wall that, that actually through gravity flow would go through and give him dialysis. And it was really amazing that he was even still alive. But the doctor told him he could never be immersed And what he meant by that, he wasn't asking about baptism. He was talking about swimming in a pool, taking a bath, things like that. He says, you'll never be immersed or you'll die because infection will go into that port and you'll die. And so here's this young man and he is so disturbed by the dilemma that he's in because he understands that the scriptures teaches that he needs to be immersed. But yet he understands that his doctors are saying that if you do that, the risk is great and you'll die. You know? I came to understand a little bit of the temptation to say, I wonder if there could be any exceptions. Who has the right to make exceptions to the will of God? The last few verses in the Bible says that if anyone adds to his words or takes away from his words, that he'll add plagues or he'll take them away from the book of life. No one has the right. And so he had family and friends telling him that he would be a fool if he would be immersed into Christ. But yet that young man said, I'm going to be immersed into Christ. And we were able to take doctors and nurses, and they were able to cover that port in such a way that no water could go into it. And so his time to get ready to be baptized took about an hour. And he was immersed into Christ. And there was no exception needed. Well, where does it come from? Let's read a few more. Eusebius in the 4th century gave credit to a man named Novation in 253 A.D. for instituting sprinkling instead of baptism. Dean Stanley lived toward the end of the 19th century and he gives us an idea of what some people think as it relates to sprinkling instead of immersion. He was a part of the Church of England. And he says, the reason of the change is obvious. In other words, the reason people change from immersion to sprinkling is obvious. The practice of immersion, apostolic and primitive as it is. See what he's saying? He says it goes back to the apostles, but it's so primitive, so outdated. Immersion was suitable for the southern, eastern countries for which it was designed, but it was peculiarly unsuitable to the feelings, conveniences, and taste of the countries of the north and the west. That's one man's opinion of why baptism by sprinkling is so warmly embraced by many. Listen, it's just not convenient to be immersed. And the truth is, it just doesn't taste good in our culture. We would like something that's much more sophisticated. Then when we read, the New Catholic Encyclopedia defines baptism in this way. It is evident that baptism in the early church was immersion. The word baptism is derived from the Greek word baptizo. It means to plunge or to dip. The old Catholic encyclopedia says the most ancient form employed was unquestionably immersion. But yet, they sprinkle today. 
Martin Luther, the one who founded the church that later would be called the Lutheran church, said, when someone baptizes you, he submerses you in the water with his own hands. Baptism was an immersion in the water, whence the name. For the Greek word baptizo means immerse or plunge, and the word baptisma means immersion. But yet, his church sprinkles today. Adam Clark, the Methodist scholar, says about Romans 6 and 4, the apostles here alludes to a mode of administering baptism by immersion by the whole body being put under water. But yet, the Methodists sprinkle today unless the individual asks to be immersed. John Calvin, the leader of the Protestant Reformation movement, the founder of Presbyterianism, he says the very word baptism means to immerse and it's certain that it is the practice of the ancient church. When he wrote about Acts 8 and 38, he said, here we see the right use among the men of old times with baptism for they put the whole body into the water. And John 3 and 23 that we've already read about John choosing a place with much water, he says, we may infer that John and Christ administered baptism by plunging the whole body beneath the water, but yet the Presbyterians today would sprinkle. Philip Shaw, a Presbyterian scholar, says the baptism of Christ in the Jordan and the illustration of baptism used in the New Testament are all in favor of immersion instead of sprinkling as is freely administered by the best exegesis, Protestant, Catholic, English, German, and so forth. Friends, People that know the scriptures, the only reason I read all those is to show you that people that know the scriptures say that the baptism in the scriptures is immersion. It's the additional doctrines that have been brought in after the word of God has been complete that have said, we're going to change it. This change is much more convenient. And we're going to begin sprinkling or pouring. But it's not from God. Those teachings are from men. So we ask the question, is baptism of immersion necessary? Let's close this lesson by looking at four or five passages very quickly to see, is baptism of immersion necessary? If you will, go to 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. As you're looking toward 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, I remind you in Acts, the second chapter, what happened when those individuals asked, what shall we do? They were told that they needed to be repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then in 41, it says that those that gladly received the word were added unto them. In 47, that addition was to the church and when we look at 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, if you will, look at verse 13. For by one spirit, we are all baptized, what? Into one body. So we ask the question to the scriptures. Lord, is baptism of immersion necessary? And he says, if you want to be a part of the church, it's necessary because those who are baptized are added to the church. Look in Galatians, the third chapter. Galatians, the third chapter, we read in verse 27. For as many of you, Galatians 3 and 27, for as many of you as as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Is baptism of immersion necessary? 
It's necessary if we want to move from the state of being lost and separated from Christ. And so we're living in the world separated from Christ. If we want to be added into Christ, baptism is the point in time. It is the place that we are added into Christ. We'll study more about that on Wednesday night. And so we ask the question, is it necessary? It's necessary if we want to be in the church, if we want the Lord to add us to his church. It's necessary if we want to be in Christ. But now let's look to Acts the second chapter in verse 38. In Acts the second chapter in verse 38, when those individuals wanted to know what they should do in order to be saved, remember that answer in 38. Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ For the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's necessary if we want our sins remissed, if we want our sins forgiven. Look, if you will, to 1 Peter, the third chapter, in verse 21. 1 Peter, the third chapter, in 21. There is also an antitype which now saves us. It's necessary if what? We want to be saved, and he says it's baptism. Now, notice the parenthetical phrase here. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh. In other words, baptism isn't that we go in here so that we can take a physical bath and clean up a little bit. But notice what he says. But it is the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Lord says the baptism and immersion is necessary if you want a good conscience. Do you want to be able to pillow your head and know that you have done the will of God in order to be saved? Peter writes about baptism and he says, if you have done that, not that baptism is the all in all. Baptism is only for one who is a believer, John 3 and 16. Baptism is only for one who is ready to repent, Luke 13 and 3. Baptism is is for one who's not ashamed. They're willing to confess, Matthew 10, 31, 32, and 33. Baptism is for the believer who has repented and is confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. They are ready now to be immersed. Why? They want to be a part of the Lord's church. Why? Because they want to be in Christ. Why? Because they want their sins remissed or forgiven. Why? Because they want to be able to put their head on the pillow and say, I have a good conscience. I have done, not what man has said, I have done what God has asked me to do. I've been immersed. Several years ago, we were in Morristown, Tennessee, conducting a very similar campaign that we're in the midst of right now. There's a woman who was a retired school teacher. She was either in her late 60s or early 70s. She had read in the newspaper the topics of the sermons that would be preached, and she noticed that on Monday night, the topic would be about either sprinkling or immersion. And she thought to herself, even though she had gone to church all her life, she thought to herself, Lord, I don't know much about sprinkling except for the fact that I was sprinkled one time. And Lord, if you want me to go and hear and learn more about sprinkling, I'll go if you send someone to my door. I'm not suggesting to you that's what she should have done. I'm just telling you that's what she did. Tony Huddleston and his son Daniel Saturday knocked on her door. 
She simply accepted their information that was given. She acknowledged it and closed the door. She then looked up as she closed the door toward heaven and she said, God, I guess you want me to go Monday night. I was standing in the foyer on that Monday night and and she walked by me and she said, I'm here to learn all of the things that's taught in the Bible about sprinkling. I've studied my Bible a lot, but I've never studied about sprinkling. At the end of that sermon, she was rather shaken. She asked if we could sit down and talk. She said things like, I don't understand all those passages that we read about immersion. Why has nobody in my church showed me those? Or why have I never seen them as I've read my Bible? And then to think that I have been a student of the Word of God for all of these years and I've never noticed that sprinkling is not ever mentioned in the Bible. And as we talked, she began to try to process all of this that was so hard for her to hear. I admired that little lady so much because she would interject this phrase as we would talk. She would shake her head in disbelief, but then she would say as if she were talking to herself, If my Lord asks it, I must do it. And then she would talk a little more about it. I don't understand. And we would look at other passages and then she'd say, but if my Lord asks, I must do it. And so she agreed that that night and the next day she wanted to go back and read the book of Acts. And she was there the next night of the campaign. The preacher that was the regular preacher there, he and I sat down again with her that night and and talked with her again because she wanted to ask more questions as a result of her study. And on Wednesday, she dropped by the building and she said those words that she had said each of the other nights, if my Lord asks it, I must do it. And I know my Lord asked me to be immersed into Him. And she was. Friends, the question tonight is not, who here knows everything? There's not anybody here that has it all figured out. But the question should be this, who here has a heart that says, when I learn that my Lord is asking me to do something that I've never done, I must do it. Tonight, I beg you to look seriously, deeply, with an open heart into the Word of God. And whatever God asks you to do, have that attitude that says, I must do it.
I know around us in our religious world, there's a lot of things said that God didn't say. We need to push those disturbing messages away. And we need to focus on what is said and what is offered. To have a good conscience. To be forgiven. To be added to the Lord's body. To be saved. Tonight, if there's anything that we can do to help you We would love to do that. And as we sing this song of invitation, if you want to respond and and request prayers, if you want to confess sin and pray forgiveness, if you want to be baptized and immersed into Christ, if we can help you in any way. If you're not ready for that, but yet you want to study more, please don't leave here tonight. Don't leave here tonight without seeking God's will in your life. If we can help in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.